Our scripture reading today is uh, taken from Ezekiel, in chapter 6. chapter 6 and the first seven verses says this and the word of the Lord came unto me saying son of man set thy face towards the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them and say ye mountains of Israel hear the word of the Lord God thus saith the Lord God to the mountains and to the hills to the rivers and to the valleys. Behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you, and I will destroy your high places. And your altars shall be desolate, and your images shall be broken, and I will cast down your slain men before your idols. And I will lay the dead carcasses of the children of Israel before their idols, and I will scatter your bones round about your altars. In all your dwelling places the cities shall be laid waste, and the high places shall be desolate, that your altars may be laid waste and made desolate, and your idols may be broken and cease, and your images may be cut down, and your works may be abolished. And the slain shall fall in the midst of you, and ye shall know, that I am the Lord. Amen. We saw a mention of high places. High places. What are high places? Why did God outlaw them? Why were people so attracted to them? Why did even good men neglect to tear them down? And what has all this to do with us? I want to talk about high places. So what they are, some examples in scripture, and then answer the question, what has this to do with us? High places, well it suggests height, it suggests elevation. So that is the case in, in all these high places. And what's so great about height? What is so significant about being something being elevated? Well, it seems that God has programmed man to associate elevation with superiority sometimes. I'll give you an example. If I went to see, if I had an audience with their King uh, Charles, uh, I would be expected to, to bow down. 
and our jaws does not move, I bow down, and in doing so, I make him more elevated than he was before. This is why kings are on thrones. This is why people bow down. And this idea has not only been programmed into us, but God is pleased to use that uh, sort of idea, that symbol, even with himself. God is said, for example, to be seated in the heavens with his feet on the earth. So there's that elevation again. We might remember that he called Moses to, to go up a mountain to, to meet God. Now, we should be mature and think that God is not high up. He's described as being high because we can, we can grasp what that means, that he is exalted in his characteristics, if you like. But I can promise you that if I were to ascend up uh, through the atmosphere and break through into outer space and keep going, at no point would I enter the realm of God, uh, let alone see him. But God uses that. And the evidence that this is built within man is also seen with pagans because it is a universal practice that people build um, towers and structures and high places. And you might remember the people of uh, Babel, the inhabitants of Babel. They wanted to make a name for themselves and they didn't <coughs> build an extensive uh, garden. <clears throat> what did they do? They built a tower. And it was important that the tower went up as high as possible. So there's always been that association. So just to be clear, God uses that imagery in describing himself and his habitation, but we are not to think that God is up there at all. Now, High places, well, they sound like they are high up, like up a mountain, and certainly I'm sure some of them were. So you can imagine maybe a shrine, a, a, a building, a temple, up a mountain or up a hill. That was one type. But we find, if we look in uh, Jeremiah, um, if we look in Jeremiah chapter 7, and verse 31, it says, Jeremiah 7, 31 says, this is God speaking through Jeremiah, of course, and they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire. So we have, we have a high place in uh, a valley uh, mentioned there. So it seems that high places can be, in terms of the landscape, high up. Or they might not be. They might be on a plain, a low-lying plain. But where they were on the plain, they would, they would, there would be a, a is it called a, a, a 
a monolith lifted up a large stone up into up into the air uh, like Stonehenge those big stones in Stonehenge could be a large stone sometimes it was uh, an, an altar so quite a wide flat area but it was still elevated off the ground always elevated now although we, we might not be sure about what they uh, look like these high places there is one thing that we can say with confidence that the Lord said they are to be destroyed. These high places were associated mostly with the worship of pagan gods. You will have heard of Baal, you may have heard of Ashtaroth and others, and God commands them to be destroyed. And it is uh, worth me uh, just reading this from the scriptures from Deuteronomy. From Deuteronomy 12 and verses 2 and 3. Say, God says, Ye shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which ye shall possess serve their gods. Upon the high mountains, upon the hills, and under every green tree. And ye shall overthrow the altars, and break their pillars, and burn their groves with fire. And ye shall hew down the graven images of their gods, and destroy the names of them out of that place. Well, they are to be destroyed. If you read the scriptures and you come across an occasion where there are one or two, where God's people are worshipping Jehovah in a high place, that might cause some confusion. And it was simply a concession by God, a temporary concession by God for those places to be put to a different use. For the worship of God until the temple came. So you will hear of, you will read of Samuel, for example, employing one of these high places. And you might think, well, that's a bit dodgy. Well, it was a, a temporary measure only. I thought, I thought we would go through uh, some examples of high places to show you that. God has outlawed these high places and yet I said at the beginning that there's this addiction to them by the people. In fact, when uh, the house of uh, Israel and the house of Judah were each uh, taken into captivity, they were exiled. One of the main reasons cited was their love of the high places. And I thought we would look at a few examples and to make it easy, I've restricted these examples to just one book in the scriptures, which is Second Kings. And so, in Second Kings, beginning at uh, chapter 12, here's one example. Second Kings 12, verses 1 to 3. In the seventh year of Jehu... Jehoash began to reign, and forty years reigned he in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. And Jehoash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all his days, wherein Jehoiada the priest instructed him. But the high places were not taken away, 
the people still sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. Turn over a few pages to chapter 14. The opening verses of chapter 14. In the second year of Joash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, reigned Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah. Uh, I, I think, I'm not 100% sure, I think Amaziah was also Uzziah, mentioned by the prophet. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Je Jehoadan of Jerusalem, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet, not like his father, he did according to all the things as Joash's father did, howbeit the high places were not taken away. As yet the people did sacrifice and burnt incense on the high places. The next chapter, 15. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, began Azariah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, to reign. 16 years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned two and 50 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord according to all according to all that his father Amaziah had done, save that the high places were not removed. The people sacrificed and burnt incense still on the high places. Further on in that chapter, in verse 32, in the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, began Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, to reign. Five and twenty years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Howbeit, the high places were not removed. The people sacrificed and burnt incense still in the high places. So you can see... Um, if you, if you uh, later on, if you want to look in um, chapter 16, the opening verses there, um, you'll see a similar sort of pattern. So we have these kings doing that which was right in the sight of the Lord, <clears throat> but not removing the high places. You can see maybe how special these high places were to the people. And even good kings were frightened of, or unwilling to pull them down. <clears throat> Maybe that was a political uh, decision, I don't know. Some of you will be aware that there were proper reforming kings. Uh, we think of kings such as uh, King Asa, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, um, Josiah, and... These went all the way. These people went for it. These dragged those places down and set them on fire exactly like they were supposed to, with a real zeal. And yet, once they had gone, once they'd died, things just went back to the way they were, and they simply rebuilt all the high places again.
the stupidity. That's what I'm tempted to think. Oh, the stupidity of those people. The ungodliness of them. Perhaps I, perhaps I want to look down on these people because my sins are of a more respectable kind. They're not really bad sins like those people's. Mine are not quite as bad, perhaps. So I have a right, do I, to, to shake my head in disbelief at these people, these idolaters. Well, believes in our friends, I have sin in my heart. What right do I have? What right do I have to gloat in any way? Uh, I suspect, I don't know you all, I suspect everyone in this room has sin in their heart too. If I'm wrong, you can rebuke me later. But I suspect everyone here has sin. You might think of it as high places in our hearts. You might think that we have built high places of sin in our souls and we are determined to keep them there by the looks of it. The high places of sin in our own hearts, it stops us looking down on other people and shaking our heads with pride. Those of you who are born again, many things happened as a result of your conversion and one of them is by virtue of you joining the family of God and becoming sons and daughters of God, you also became heirs. You are now part of the royal family of God. And if you are a, a, a lady and you think, well, should I not be a queen? Well, the good news is you have been promoted. Ladies, you've been promoted from queens to kings. And so we are all kings in the eyes of God. With that in mind, I would like you to uh, just um, indulge me with this, uh, this fantasy for a moment. I, I want to imagine that there is a, a third book of kings. Uh, we'll call it maybe three kings or three chronicles. I want you to imagine... Three Kings or Three Chronicles, it's the chronicles of the kings of Hollywell. Of you folks. I wonder how it would read when we look at John. I've made that up. Look at John, the king. What would it say? And he reigned with Christ all his days. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Or would it say, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, but he did not pull down all the high places of sin in his heart. Is that not more likely the case? Would that not be the story of every one of us? Is that not the story for every one of us? That we say we love God. And we do. We, we do love God in, in a sense. But just how much? Because it seems that we cannot stop sinning. We cannot stop sinning. We confess how bad it is. 
and how much in our hearts we don't want it, and that is all true. But just how much effort, how much power have we sought from God to destroy the high places of sin in our hearts? It's a, it's a dangerous thing, sin, friends. And I don't, I don't know the theology of everyone here, but I will, I will just tell you for interest that I am a sort of doctrines of grace guy. And part of my beliefs is that when God, one of God's elect is drawn into his kingdom and is converted in this, in this time, then he cannot be lost. However, we should not think that if we are a professing Christian, then the sin does not matter too, too much. Well, on the one hand, our sin uh, uh, offends God, so that's enough. That's enough to want to be rid of it. But there is another aspect to this. There are those who profess Christ. There are those who make a, a good profession, who get baptised. Those who get involved in churches just like this one. But they don't belong to God. They draw nigh to him with their lips, but their hearts are far from them. And those people will go on for a while, for a season. And in the Bible, there is a type of creature, one who makes a profession but falls into sin. And the sin they fall into is worse than they carried out before they made a profession. They seem to be given over by God to sin. And they become embroiled in it. And they are taken down by it. And that person in the scriptures, if I understand correctly, is known as an apostate. An apostate is one who started off as a respectable, professing Christian in a church. And the end of that person, the scriptures say, the end of that person is worse than the beginning. It would be better if that person had never been born. Now, one of God's elect can't become apostate. I don't believe that. But what I mean is that if you are flirting with sin secretly, you should be aware that the fact, the fact that you are addicted to that sin might be an indicator that you are not sincere in your profession. And the danger that you should present to yourself is that you might be one of those people. I don't say that, friends, to discourage you or, or scare you. Well, friends, we have to hate sin with every ounce of our being. Because if we cherish it and we keep a little part of our lives secretly to indulge fully in certain sins, we are in danger of being one of these people, the apostates. And there is no coming back for the apostates. There is no way back to God. There is no more repentance. It's a scary thought. But sin is bad. It's wicked. It's offensive to God. I noted in the scriptures that the sin had got so bad in uh, Judah that God said, you know what? The whole of Jerusalem is like a high place. The whole of the city is now just a giant high place to paganism that's how bad it had come 
Well, to those of you that don't know Jesus Christ, I'm going to shoehorn this little, this little uh, section in. I'm going to explain to you that the Christ that you've heard of, he is the saviour of the world. Not that he will save everyone in the world, but he's the only saviour this world has. Christ went to the cross. He took onto, on himself the sins of other people. He, he said, blame me, Father, blame me for their sins. Punish me instead of them. Let them go free. And so it was the great transaction took place and Jesus suffered for the scummy things that each one of us who are born again have done. And so it is in his death that he secured redemption. It wasn't a potential atonement in case people believed in the future. He secured redemption for all his elect people and every one of them will be saved if you friends are outside of Christ today, but you have some interest, I bet you all believe in God. I bet all the people who go to churches, the children of believers, they all believe in God, but they might not belong to Christ. A little prayer when you were three. How much does that mean exactly? Jesus, I know you love me. How much, how much does that mean? How much does that child know about the things of God at that age? I made a profession when I was young, but it was God worked with me and I made a, a much more sort of, um, uh, made a profession with more understanding later on. But it means that uh, I was a Christian, a Christian camp uh, with 14 to 18 year olds a couple of weeks ago. And as far as I'm concerned, I, I, don't, uh, I don't assume a single one of them is born again. 42 children, most of them from Christian families, Every one of them making a profession of some sort. I don't assume they, they all belong to God. They know what to say. But if you are outside of Christ, he says, you don't have to climb a mountain. You don't have to find a high place. You don't have to flagellate yourself. You simply surrender. You surrender to God in prayer and say, I open up everything. I surrender. I Confess my sin. I, I am a sinner. I'm vile. I am vile. But Lord, you are a great saviour. And I want you to save me. And in 30 seconds, someone can go from death to life. That's all God requires. Just give in. Just give in. Just stop and surrender. And it's in that uh, conversion that many of us have experienced that there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. When I say Christ died for our sins, friends, I mean, that, I mean all of them. I, I, I suspect A.W. Pink uh, and others believe that, uh, that when you were converted, all the sins up to that point were covered by Christ. If I'm wrong, I'll apologise, but I think, I think it might have been A.W. Pink. All the sins up to your conversion. I believe that all the sins up to and after your conversion are covered by the blood of Christ. And they were dealt with in history. They were dealt with 2,000 years ago. What does that mean? It means that God's able to look at us 
and see something different. He knows you, he knows you, you sin, but he chooses to view you legally, if you like. He chooses to view you as united to his son and one who has his very own righteousness. He's able to view you as perfect because of your union with Christ. Now, friends, that means that you who are converted have forgiveness. You have absolute forgiveness for all your sins. But still, we are expected to go to God each day and confess and repent afresh. And I just want to ask you today to encourage you to be ruthless. Be ruthless with your sin. Those those megaliths of, 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 of sin that you have in your soul, tear them down. Tear those things down. Find those little shrines in your soul of pride and other sins. Find them and break them to pieces. Friends, take every vestige of those high places of sin in your heart. Take every one of them and burn them, burn them to dust. Well, friends, I, I hope I hope that I am able to apply these things to myself as much as I hope it can be applied to you. And I, I, will, I will just say this, that we have the Spirit, we who are gods, we have the Holy Spirit. And the Word of God tells us, the Word of God tells us that we can ask for power from on high, Receive it and then employ it with great enthusiasm in resisting temptation, in discovering those high places and destroying them and burning them down. That's what the Holy Spirit's able to do with us. And my own experience is that amidst all the, the sin in my life, I have also known great, great victories by the grace of God. Victories over sin. And I have been trapped in sins in times past that I have been completely delivered from. Praise the Lord. And I would just commend the Lord and the Holy Spirit to you. In the name of Christ. Amen.